Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your love, for your mercy, for Jesus Christ. We ask that your spirit will join us now, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, make us effective to witness for you, and lead us in our study today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. As we start class this morning, we get to do something very special. As you know, Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto him. Uh, do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, we're going to do a child dedication. And Ryler Lucas McGee was born on January 13, 2020, and is being raised to love the Lord by his nana, uh, Teresa Sweat, and his pap-pap, Tom Price. Uh, na- uh, his nana has adopted him and is now his legal mother. Okay, and they and they want uh, to have him dedicated uh, to the Lord. So we're going to do that this morning. Okay. So Ryler, hey buddy, hi. hi. <laughs> we're going to pray the blessing of the Lord on you. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So I'm going to put my hand on your head. Okay. Yes, I'm going to touch your head. Okay. Alrighty, let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and for Jesus. And, and we come before you this morning because this young man is, is being dedicated by his nana and papap to, to be raised in the Lord, to know you and to love you. And, and the reason he's being raised by his grandparents is because uh, you know there are circumstances that his parents are not able to fulfill at this time. And we know that he will need your special watch care and mercy and blessing. And, and we know that as you've created us, that, that we inherit things from our parents. And so not only do we want his parents, his adoptive parents to be blessed with your wisdom and strength, but we want this young man to be blessed physiologically. And we ask that if there's any epigenetic or other uh, um, issues that he's inherited that would make it uh, uh, temptations beyond his ability to control, we know that you've promised that those who are dedicated to you will never be tempted. So we ask that you will reset and heal anything that needs to be healed in his body, that he can be raised to know and love you and fulfill the purposes you have for him. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So we are doing lesson 11 in our quarterly in the crucible with Christ. And the title is waiting in the crucible. And the memory verse is, but the fruits of the spirit is long suffering. And they kind of just cut to the long suffering part. Galatians 5.22. Other versions say the fruit of the spirit is patience instead of long suffering. There is a uh, Christian musical group called Petra that uh, one of their songs is is entitled More Power To Ya. And the lyrics of the song, I remember, I, I, I listened to this growing up. The lyrics of the song go, you say you've been feeling weaker, weaker by the day. You say you can't make the joy of your salvation stay. But good things come to them that wait, not to those who hesitate. So hurry up and wait upon the Lord. (laughs) More power to you when you're standing on his word, when you're trusting with your whole heart in the message you have heard. More power to you when we're all in one accord. They that wait upon the Lord, they shall renew, they shall renew their strength. And I I like the, the, uh, the kind of play on words there. Wait upon the Lord, as in be patient, but wait upon the Lord and carry out your duties for him at the same time. And so there is a, both of those are true. We need to be patient, but we also need to fulfill our duties, don't we? So I thought that was wonderful. The first two paragraphs uh, in Sabbath's lesson read, Scientists did an experiment with four-year-old children in marshmallows. Each child was told by a scientist that they should could have a marshmallow. However, if the child waited until the scientist returned from an errand, they would be given two. Some of the children stuffed the marshmallow in their mouths the moment the scientist left. Others waited. The differences were noted. The scientist then kept track of these children into their teen years. The ones who had waited turned out to be better adjusted, better students, and more confident than those who didn't. It seemed that patience was indicative of something greater, something important in the human character. Do you all go, amen, amen. Is that what you think? That's not what I thought. (laughs) 
The findings from the study were that some children waited and some children didn't. Those who waited were better adjusted later in life and had more confidence than those who didn't. That's what they observed. That was the observation. That's a legitimate observation to make. They made it. They made the observation. The question is, what does it mean and why? The lesson concludes that it's patience. Patience indicative of something greater. That's why. Some were patient, some weren't. But are there other explanations for this observation and these outcomes? For instance, could these differences be explained by differences in home life? A nurturing, loving home versus a chaotic, unstructured, or even traumatic and abusive home? Would such a childhood impact how well-adjusted someone was later in life? If they lived in a home where, where, oh, I don't know, the history is that at Christmas they get Christmas presents from their grandparents, and when they get home, their parents sell their Christmas presents in order to uh, buy drugs. I have patients that this is their life history. They, all their Christmas presents were sold by their parents to buy drugs. If that was their home life, might they learn, you can't trust what adults will say or do, so you better get the marshmallow now or you might not get one. <laughs> and could that then impact their adjustment later in life? Was it really about patience? Is that really the lesson here? Or is it about trusting and about uh, taking for yourself because you'll get taken advantage of if you don't? What about nutritional differences in brain development? Uh, If children had that lead toxicity from eating paint, we know their prefrontal cortexes are damaged. They have less uh, impulse control. uh, And they might, might be less adjusted later on. What about if they have undiagnosed ADHD? Let me tell you what it's like for an ADHD kid. ADHD kid uh, may be maybe intelligent, but they can't stay on task. They're easily distracted by things. So they're in school, and the teacher is giving a lecture about the capitals of Europe. And the capital of Italy is, that's a cool bird. I wonder if my, we have birds like that at home. And the capital of France is, you know what? Johnny's got a new pen. I wonder if mom would buy me a pen like that. And this is how their mind rolls, okay, inside their head. And then when the teacher goes, now, what was the capital of Italy? And all the kids laugh, and they get a bad grade. And then the parents are disappointed, and the message comes, and the child is internalizing, I'm not as smart as others. I'm not as good as others. I'm bad. I'm a bad person. And will that affect their adjustment? I'm not discounting in any way the value and importance of patience and the necessity of developing the fruits of the Spirit. Nor am I discounting that whenever in life a person develops the fruit of the Spirit, that their life from that point onward will be better adjusted and they will have more confidence. Of course, I think the link between Christian maturity and healthiness is well established. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm pointing out that this particular study does not prove the link that they're trying to suggest. In fact... Failing to recognize other causes that I just walked through, particularly biological causes, and misdiagnosing an impulsive child as having a spiritual problem rather than a neurobiologic one, could result in parents failing to provide the proper nutrition or getting the proper medical interventions, and instead bearing down with more authoritarian rules and discipline and consequences to teach their child better self-control, which would only work to instill in the child a distorted self-image, to discourage them, to instill a potential further sense of rebellion. Maybe the child drops out. Why try? You only get punished anyway. Maybe going down more destructive pathways that would not have occurred had the child been diagnosed early and treated early and therefore not been laughed at over and over again in class, not gotten bad grades because they got their prefrontal cortex online where they could pay attention and learn like the other kids. And the parents with a child who got treated early would be less stressed and worried about their child because they're not getting the reports from the school, the bad grades or the impulsive stuff, or they're not staying in the seat. And so the parents uh, treat the children with more validation and pride rather than more criticism and disappointment. And do you think any of that has an impact on the child's confidence and success later in life? Now, if you're a parent and you look back after hearing what I just said and recognize (laughs) that you had a child with biological problems when they were small and you didn't appreciate it at the time uh, and uh, and you didn't get them the medical treatment that they that they could have benefited by. What do you do today? Do you beat yourself up? Do you feel guilty? Do you judge yourself with information that you have received today that you did not have at the time? 
No, that would be an error. <laughs> that would be a fault. You would create a falsehood. No, what you do is you treat yourself based on the motive and recognize you were doing the best you could with the information you had for the welfare of your child, but you are not an omnipotent God and you don't know all things. Okay, So you judge yourself based on the motive of your decision, not simply based on the, the merits of the objective facts that you were unaware of at the time. That's right, but you still do it. That's right, but you still do it. <laughs> Sunday's lesson uh, points us to Psalms 27.14. It says, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. Hey, by the way, you hear all this noise today? Yeah, yeah they're doing something next to Only a few more weeks we'll be in our building. We won't have to put up with this anymore. Hallelujah, right? Yes. Yeah. So wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, wait for the Lord. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? Well, the good, that's the, uh, NI, that was the NIV uh, translation. Here's the good news of the same verse. The NIV, wait for the Lord. Good news, trust in the Lord. Have faith, do not despair. Trust in the Lord. When you hear, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord, do you automatically hear it as trust in the Lord? Or do they have subtle connotation differences? What is the relationship between trusting God and waiting for God? Is there, are they really actually tightly connected? When we trust the Lord with outcomes, with the future, with aspects of reality that are not ours to carry out. See, I don't trust the Lord to brush my teeth for me. That's my duty. I either do it or I don't. But I trust the Lord with the stuff that's not mine, including how other people's lives turn out. I can't save another person, even if I love them. I, can't, I can love them. I can't save them. I can love them. I can't fix them. So trusting Lord with things that aren't ours, I can't, I can't know the future. I have to trust the Lord with how things turn out while I fulfill my duty. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had to decide whether they bowed down or didn't bow down. That was their choice to make, not God's choice to make, yes or no. But how it turned out afterwards, that wasn't up to them. They even said to Nebuchadnezzar, we know that our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. They didn't know what God would do. They knew what he could do. And they trusted him. That's what it means. We trust the Lord. The lesson asks us to read Psalms 37, 7, which from the NIV reads, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Do we need that today? Do you see people carrying out wicked schemes around you today in the world? Does it cause you to fret, to worry? How can you not worry when you watch the news every day? Don't watch it. Does turning your eyes upon Jesus make a difference? Fixing your eyes upon Christ. So Thursday's lesson, since it brought up Psalms 37 for us in Sunday's lesson, but Thursday's lesson has to take a deeper dive into Psalms 37, and I thought we would do that. Let's go to a deep dive in Psalms 37, and we're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to unpack Psalms 37. Uh, applicable lessons for us today, and I'm going to read Psalms 37 from The Remedy, and I encourage you to follow along in a different version and see how they compare and see where the design law view kind of changes maybe some of the way it says it, kind of like maybe from from um, wait to trust. That, that would be kind of the way. But here we go. So, verse 1. Do not be distraught over the apparent gains of the selfish or envy those who persist in violating God's design of love. Now, the probably says God's law in the uh, other versions, but God's design of love. Why, sh why not? It isn't fair, is it? Why should those who do wrong prosper? Shouldn't they suffer? Why shouldn't we be distressed when we, when we see the people doing evil, getting richer and more powerful, and getting away with their lies and their suppression of truth and their exploiting of others? Why shouldn't that? Why should we not be distraught over that? What law lens are you viewing the selfish and the wicked through? Verse 2 tells us why. 
For they will soon wither like grass. Like flowers of the field, they will fade away. Trust in the Lord and live to love others. Be active in your community as a shepherd of God's kingdom of love. What happens if you actually live to love others and function as a shepherd to the people of God? What happens to you? Do you get arbitrary blessings? Well, you've, uh, I sent you out to do seven different things. You did them, so now you can come back and get a gold star, and, and I'm going to give you a, you know, a, a little bag of Skittles. or, or in, and You get some arbitrary thing, or does something naturally happen in the hearts and minds of people who live for God and carry out his purposes? Are you, do you grow in maturity? Do you find that your capacity for love expands as you actively love people? Verse 4. When you delight in the Lord, he will give you what your heart desires. What does that mean? If you delight in the Lord, uh, you, you can get the lottery numbers for the next winning lottery ticket? When you delight in the Lord, your character becomes like his. It's your relationship. And then you desire? Help others do good others. You desire the same things in principle that he desires. Yeah, exactly. That's why you get it, because you're wanting to fulfill his purposes. What's the prayer? Thy will be done, not uh, or our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we desire, God's will to be done. Verse 5, commit yourself to following God's plan. Live in harmony with his designs. Trust him with how life turns out, and he will do what is best. He will renew your character into righteous love that shines brighter every day. Your decisions will radiate goodness like the noonday, noonday sun. What is the focus of the righteous? Where do the righteous put their attention, their interest, their heart? You know what the treasure Jesus talked about? Where, where is the interest heart? Isn't it on the kingdom of God? On truth, love, liberty, the principles of God, honoring God, bringing glory to God. Verse 7. Rest in the Lord and be patient for his plan to unfold. This is the, 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 the verse that we were focused on just a moment ago. Don't be distraught when the selfish seem to succeed, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Do you see why we don't need to, to be distraught when the selfish seem to succeed? Every act of sin damages the sinner. Hardens the heart, warps the character, sears the conscience, corrupts the soul, takes them farther and farther and farther away from the kingdom of God. And if they don't repent and experience the grace of God, they ultimately wither away and die. We don't need to be jealous of them, for they have nothing of eternal value. Nothing. Get your mind around. Really get, when you look at somebody in the world doing evil and you're jealous, you should say, what? Of what? They have nothing of eternal value. Nothing. They're to be pitied. And we should pray like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They think they're getting ahead. And perhaps by worldly standards of power and wealth, they're getting ahead. But they are destroying their eternal souls and they're not getting ahead. This is the perspective. Verse 8, don't let anger or resentment take root in your heart. Don't worry or ruminate. It only inflames selfishness. Do you see how the modern media, politics, uh, the various programming on TV and, 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 and movies, message, and the messaging constantly seeks to divide society on issues that are designed to incite anger? instill resentment, cause fear and worry, inflame selfishness. Do you see it? It's purpose, it's strategic, it's designed, it's not designed to bring unity. It's not a message of peace. It's not a message of mercy and love and grace. It's a message of, of division and, and outrage and injustice to, to stir up these various negative feelings, to cause society to divide. Verse 9. And selfish people will sever themselves from life, but those who trust in the Lord will inherit the earth. Why will the selfish die? What happens? Who decides for the selfish that they die eternally? Who makes that choice for the selfish? From where does the inheritance of the righteous come? 
Is the inheritance of the righteous a legal pronouncement, a ruling, or is it something literal, experiential, objective that we actually receive? When a branch, using Jesus' metaphor, is grafted into the vine, literally, if you do that, an actual branch grafted into a vine, what happens in the branch that is grafted into the vine? Does it begin receiving something into it that it doesn't uh, merit or earn or work for on its own? Does it begin inheriting something from the vine that begins to flow through it? And does it produce fruit? When we are grafted into Jesus, we inherit something actual from him that lives and operates within us and brings forth new life. But doesn't the Bible say that the meek are to inherit the earth? Isn't the land, the world, our inheritance? Why am I talking about something we inherit in our character? New heart and right spirit, for instance. Why am I talking about that if the Bible says we inherit the earth? Because we inherit the new earth. Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is... Okay. Is an inheritance a gift? It's a gift. If you inherit something, it was left to you by your ancestor. But the gift of eternal life, is it for all human beings or only people who become part of the family of God? It's for everybody, but you choose what kind of Do all human beings receive the gift of eternal life? No, it's an inheritance that is available to us all, but, but only those who become part of the family grafted into the vine, reborn into Christ, receive the inheritance, uh, the gift of eternal life, being reborn in the family of God, dying to sin and selfishness, having our hearts renewed by Jesus, having his law written on our hearts and minds. And what causes us to experience this renewal, this regeneration, this recreation to be like Christ, isn't it? Being reconnected to him in trust, in love. And then his spirit comes in and transforms us. And this is why we ultimately then inherit the earth, because we've been restored into harmony with Christ. We first inherited his heart, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That comes first. And then the place we dwell comes second. Verse 10. It won't be long and the selfish will be no more. You will consider their place in the universe and realize they no longer exist. It won't be long. Why won't the selfish be in the universe? How does that come about? Do we need to be jealous and envious of those who are destroying themselves by embracing and practicing the methods of God's enemy? Do we really need to be jealous of that? No. It's like, you know what? That person's smoking two packs a day. I never get a smoke break. I have patience. They get to go out on a smoke break every three hours. I don't get to go on a smoke break. It's not fair. Are they really getting an advantage because they go out and smoke? No, there's no advantage to that. This is kind of how we look at things in the world. Yeah, but but I got to stay in work still. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you're developing. You're getting stronger. You're not destroying yourself. Uh, verse verse eleven. But the humble who trust the Lord and love others will inherit the earth and enjoy everlasting peace. Do you experience more peace when you love others and live humbly? Or when you are arrogant and fight with others? I mean, it's a kind of a rhetorical question, but, but from our own experience, haven't we all, all had experience on both sides of that equation? I know I have. I have much more peace when I love others and I'm humble than when I'm arrogant and fight. The selfish plot against the unselfish and viciously attack them. We're going to unpack this one at some length now. Notice what it said. The selfish plot against the unselfish and viciously attack them. Why? Why did the selfish plot against Jesus and attack him? Think this through with me. Was Jesus seeking to harm anyone when he was here? No. Do the true followers of Jesus seek to harm anyone? Do they seek to take from others? Did Jesus seek to take from people? Do the followers of Jesus seek to take from others? No, they don't. Or are the followers of Jesus seeking to uplift others, to bless others, to protect others, to advance the only principles and practices that actually bring life and health and wellness? Isn't that what the followers of Jesus are trying to do? 
then if that's what they're doing, that's what Jesus did, why did the selfish attack the followers of Jesus? Jesus said if they attacked him, they're going to attack us, and they do. Why? Because the natural, and I want you to understand this, the natural result of sin of living or acting selfishly out of God's law is the natural is guilt, fear, shame. That's what it does. These emotions are painful and no one wants to experience them. No one. There are only two ways to avoid those feelings of guilt, shame, and fear. If you've been in sin and living in sin, only two ways, the godly way is by repentance and being reborn with a new heart and right spirit. And the Lord takes the, and you all the metaphors of scripture, the heart of stone, puts a heart of flesh. He washes us in the quote blood, which is the life. And we get a new principles of motive. We're transformed and there's joy and peace in the renewal that comes from God's grace. That's the godly way. But this godly way is a painful way. It's a way where our shepherd leads us through the valley of the shadow of death in which we die to sin and self. The old man dies so that he leads us in a path of righteousness for his character or namesake to restore within us our soul. It's a healing process, but it's a painful process. It feels like we're dying to go through that process of genuine repentance and renewal. And some people would prefer not to go through that. They don't want to face the wickedness and corruption in their own heart, even under the umbrella of God's grace. And so instead, they don't want to do this because it requires, to really go through this, it requires giving up the old ways, giving up the old ideas, the old habits, the old addictions, the old pleasures, the old beliefs, the old power. And many people reject this path and instead choose the other way to avoid these feelings. And that's denial and distortion. Denying any wrong was done, distorting their minds. They're distorting their mind. You can't actually distort reality. Have you ever heard people say, hey, he's bending the truth. He's twisting the truth. You ever heard people say that? Actually, truth cannot be bent or twisted. People can only bend their minds around the truth. The truth is still the truth. So I want you to imagine you see a, a, a telephone pole and the telephone pole is straight. And we hold up a lens between you and the pole, and through the lens, the pole appears bent. So your view of the pole has been changed. Have we actually changed the pole? This is what people do when they use denial and distortion. They put a distorted warp on their own way of seeing the world, and they bend their view of the world. But truth is still the truth. It has not been changed. Just their minds are damaged and changed by this. Denial and distortion. They deny they did anything wrong, distort their minds to to avoid the guilt, shame, and fear of what is happening. And then they project outside of themselves their own dysfunction and their own defects onto others and blame others as being judgmental or critical. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. If you didn't put her there, I would have never done this. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything. It's her fault. Denial, distortion, projection. This is the experience of Cain after he killed Abel. He, He... Came to God and said, everyone's going to want to murder me now. Yep. He projected that onto everyone else. Those who refuse repentance will use denial and distortion as a means of avoiding the guilt, shame, and fear and sense of inadequacy that comes from being out of harmony with God and God's laws for life. But when they come into the presence, that's how they live. And so they're avoiding guilt. They're feeling okay with themselves until they come into the presence of the righteous. And when they come into the presence of the righteous, the right life, the right living of the righteous without the righteous saying a word brings guilt, brings conviction, because there's a contrast between the methodologies and the lifestyle of the righteous and the corruption of the wicked. And their own guilt, their own denial and distortion does not work now in the presence of light. Those in the darkness don't want to come into the light lest their evil deeds be exposed, Jesus said. This is why the wicked always seek to destroy the righteous. They always do it. And then we walk you through the steps that they do. Because they want to avoid their own guilt, their own shame, their own inadequacy. They don't want to repent. They just want to feel good about themselves while they persist in their evil. And the life of the righteous makes them feel their guilt. So they have to, instead of repenting, destroy the light. 
They want to destroy the light. So first thing they'll do is they'll try to tempt the righteous to join them in their sinful and dysfunctional living. If you'll see it you'll over and over again, we'll just watch for it. The righteous will be tempted. They'll offer you. They'll invite you. They'll try to persuade you to participate with them. I remember when I was 19, I got invited with some friends uh, that I went to high school with to a party. And they brought out some marijuana. And they started passing it around the circle. You would know who those people were. Okay. <laughs> and when it came to me, I just took, they passed it to me, and I just took it, and I passed it to the person beside me. Right, right, just, poof, right past. Okay. I didn't get invited back. There was a group, pre- I can tell you, there was a group pressure there. Everyone was participating except me. And there was real pressure to conform at that point. I never told them they shouldn't do it. I didn't give some lecture. I didn't start on the neurobiological consequences because I didn't know them then. I just knew it wasn't right. Okay? And I didn't participate. And evidently, that made them uncomfortable because they didn't invite me back. So they will seek to get the righteous to join them. If the righteous graciously refuse, then they will try to force the righteous person to tell them how good they are. They will try to tell you how it's really okay, what they're doing. Well, tobacco's legal. Alcohol's legal. Marijuana should be legal too. This is judgmental society. It's my body. I can put in it whatever I want. Who are you to tell me I can't put it in there? Their condemnation causes them to be irritable, and then they will try to make you tell them, yeah, it's actually okay. Then they will try to justify their sin, making excuses and defending themselves. Maybe even making themselves a victim. Well, I was born this way. I'm wired this way. Uh, it was my childhood made me this way. It's not my fault. And who are you to tell me I shouldn't be this way? I mean, if God, God made me this way. I was born this way. That God made me this way. He wants me to be this way. They will make themselves out to be victims. It isn't their fault. They will present their struggles to you presenting their conflict, their their issues, how hard it was for them, how they fought against it for so many years, to get you to say, it's okay, we accept you, it's okay, you can be that way. You can live that way. It's good. It's all good. That's your truth. That's your truth. That's your truth. It's okay. It's all good. If the righteous comply and agree that the evil is good, that the perversion is purity, that the wickedness is righteousness, then the denial and the guilt... Is ma- uh, uh, the denial of the guilty, the denial of the guilty is maintained and they can avoid their guilt, shame, and fear. And you've helped them do it. But if the righteous do not comply, if the righteous maintain a godly standard of living and hold to a godly high, uh, a higher vision for what God would want for us, because they understand, it's not a rule you have to keep, they understand that it's actually healthier. You're happier. You have more peace. There's more joy. There's life everlasting in God's way. It's not a rule then you'll get in trouble. It's just harmful to smoke cigarettes. It's harmful to do this stuff. If you hold to the godly standard, then the wicked will become angry and they will accuse the righteous of being intolerant, judgmental, abusive, bigoted, and will do whatever means that they use whatever means possible to try to punish the righteous and destroy the righteous. This is what the unrighteous did to Jesus. Do you see it happening in the world today? It's constant. It's constant. Verse 13. But the Lord laughs at their foolishness, for he sees their end approaching. We don't need to fear the lies, the attacks, the plots, the schemes, the denials, the distortions, the projections, the childishness of the wicked. They, you can laugh, not in a, in a derogatory way, but in a sad way. Yep, if somebody tells you they're going to live 10 years longer because they're smoking three packs a day now. You see, you laughed at that. See how you all just laughed at that? That's exactly right. You laugh. It's foolish. The ways of the wicked are foolish for those who understand God's reality. Uh, Verse 14, the selfish draw their knives and load their guns to kill the humble and those who refuse to defend themselves. But 
uh, and yeah, to destroy those who live in harmony with God's design. But their knives cut their through their own hearts, and their guns will be broken. Remember, Jesus said, "Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but can't destroy the soul." Matthew ten twenty eight. When they were killing Jesus' body on the cross, they were actually not destroying Jesus' soul. He rose again, this same Jesus. But whose soul were, was being destroyed by their actions? And that was true when they stoned Stephen. They didn't destroy Stephen's soul. They, they, they put a cessation to the operations of his physiology. His body stopped working. But he's rising again. What were they doing to their own hearts, minds, characters, and souls? This is reality. It is better to be unselfish and poor than to be selfish and rich. Is this what the world teaches? No, this is foolishness to the world, as the Bible tells us. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. The world will have you know that true success is doing whatever you have to lie, cheat, whatever you have to get more power and more money for yourself but you'll destroy your soul. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? The selfish, verse 17, for the selfish are terminal and will lose all they have, but the unselfish receive life from the Lord. Verse 18, the Lord cares for the unselfish and they inherit eternal life. And the word cares here is not in this verse refers to actively providing for and intervening in the lives of the unselfish, not the compassionate concern for. Yes, he has compassionate concern for all, but the Lord can't actively provide care for those who are actively refusing his care. (laughs) Okay? So that's why he cares for the unselfish here, actively caring, because we allow him in to do the work of healing and restoring. Verse 19. In the time of trouble, they will not be ashamed. In the days of spiritual famine, they will be filled. Understand, we are in the early part of the troublesome times before Christ comes. And the world is, is becoming more and more chaotic, more and more abusive, more and more controlling. And as I've said before, metaphorically speaking, or antitypically, you know, AD 70, the Roman army circled Jerusalem and then pulled back, giving warning to the people of God. COVID, the worldwide coalition of state powers, united to circle the world and coerce consciences of people. Worldwide, coercion of consciences happened. And they pulled back. And right now we're in the pullback. It's a warning for the people of God to flee Babylon, get out of the systems that will coerce conscience of others. The time of trouble will not be ashamed. Daniel was not ashamed when he was accused of being a traitor to the king. He was not ashamed of those accusations. Or condemned to the lion's den. He was not ashamed. Peter, Silas, and Paul were not ashamed when they were labeled as heretics by the church leadership in Jerusalem, the the former church leadership, not the New Testament church leadership, and arrested and imprisoned. We will not be ashamed to call Jesus Lord and to stand for the principles of God. And our hearts and minds will be filled with His Spirit of God and we will stand firm and we will be accused. We will be accused of the troublemakers on the earth. Verse 20, But the selfish will perish. Those who oppose the Lord and His designs will be like the fat of rams consumed in the fires of love. They go up in smoke. Why do the wicked perish? Why? Does God want them to die? Who insists on the wicked being cut off from life, from God, from not being part of God's kingdom? The wicked do. It is their choice. They beg, it says in Revelation 6.16, they beg for the mountains to fall on them. They do not want to be in the presence of infinite truth and infinite love where their denial and their distortion that allows them to avoid their guilt and shame, where that that denial doesn't work when they're in infinite truth. Infinite truth bears in. They see who they really are. They're aware of the pain and suffering. They're aware of the rejections of God's grace and mercy. And it causes agony, not an infliction. The unremedied sin does. They don't want to live in that place. Why the fat of rams? Why is it the fat of rams? Well, in the sanctuary service, the Old Testament sanctuary service, the fat was cut off of the sacrificial animal's internal organs and burned on the altar because fat is symbolic of the hidden sin inside our lives. And it gets burned away 
by the working of the Holy Spirit that burns away the old man and purifies the new man. So that's why the fat was, was there. The fires of truth and love burn through. For those who love and trust God, it burns through now and we're renewed. The selfish take from others and do, and do not return, but the unselfish give generously. The two antagonistic principles of God's kingdom, self-sacrificial love, greater love is no man, that he give his life for a friend, versus survival of the fittest. Self-sacrificial love, I'll do whatever I have to for your health and welfare, including if it comes down to it. Give my life that you might live. At war with the world's principles of I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect and advance myself, including if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. These are the two principles at war in our hearts. The righteous are those who, Revelation twelve eleven. these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They are not driven by me first, survival drives. They're driven by love for God and greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. They've been changed. Verse 22, the blessed, those blessed by the Lord will inherit the earth, but those who reject the blessings will be cut off. Again, why? And we talked about that. Verse 23, the Lord heals and restores those who follow his prescription for life. Even if they sleep in the grave, they will not be eternally lost because the Lord holds on to them. You remember, Jesus said that uh, even though they die, they will live again. And those who believe in him will never die. Okay, they might sleep. But they don't die that death of sin. Once I was young, once I was young, yeah, I can say that now. I used to be young. I couldn't. I, I am young. No, once I was young. <laughs> but I lived long and am now old. Yet I have never seen the unselfish abandoned by God or their children seeking to feed only themselves. They always give generously and lend freely, and their children live to bless others. Turn from selfishness and love other people. Then you will live forever. For the Lord loves the unselfish, those who live right, and will not abandon those who faithfully follow him. He watches over them forever, but the children of selfishness will be cut off. The unselfish will inherit the earth and live upon it forever. Those who live in harmony with God's designs speak wisdom. They tell how reality works, what is right and true. God's design protocol, law, is in their heart, and they don't sidestep it. The, the selfish spy on the unselfish, seeking to destroy them. But the Lord will not abandon them to the power of the selfish or let their condemnation stand. The wicked will condemn the righteous, but they have no true power over them. They didn't have real power over Jesus. And Jesus holds the power to the grave and to death and the keys Verse 34, wait expectantly for the Lord and live in harmony with his way. He will regenerate you to inherit the earth. You will see the selfish will be no more. We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus this time. As things are unraveling on this earth, as the problems get worse, don't fall into the trap. It's one of the devil's traps of getting us to focus on the problem. Focus on the disease and ignore the remedy. Focus on the problem and forget the solution. No, keep your focus on the remedy, on Jesus, on the solution. That's where we need to keep our focus. I mean, it's not falling into the trap of pursuing justice by the world's standards, what's called human justice. If we could simply, simply implement more rules, uh, more, more law, get the right elections, get the right law uh, judges in place, all this stuff only causes more injustice. In this world is the way, the way it works. We are to live God's principles of equality of all people. Equality of all people, meaning that we treat everyone with the love, dignity, respect, and autonomy that they deserve as beings created in the image of God. But we do not fall into the world's corrupt abusive and perverse lie called equity. Equality is equality of people and valuing everyone as children of God. Equity is about artificially constructing events to ensure certain outcomes occur based on artificial metrics of some politically 
expedient identity group. So we will actually obstruct people from fulfilling their God-given calling because they're not the right race. So we won't allow them to be admitted to a college because equity requires we admit this other group instead. Even though this person scored two standard deviations better on all the entrance exams than this person, this person has to be admitted because we have to have equity. It's in, it's unjust. It violates the principles of God's kingdom. It's artificial, and it's designed. Understand, all this talk of equity is purposely designed to cause anger, resentment, conflict, division, and war in society. Why? Well, who's the author of Confusion and Division? That's right. He wants to, he wants to damage so, hearts and minds. So don't buy into all of it. It's all a giant lie. But, but the true equality is we love everybody and we treat them with equality and we give them equal opportunity to develop themselves with the, with the abilities that God has given them. So we don't put up artificial barriers. Yes. I, I just want to resonate with what you're saying. It's a really healthy thing to read the Communist Manifesto. Yeah. Because when you read it, it's only about 40, 50 pages long. It's very apparent, you know, by creating economic, you know, equality just because people deserve it. This is the most angry document I've ever read in politics, maybe. Yeah, angry. And Antonio Gramsci, who was the father of the the Communist Party in Italy, changed it from economic disparity to social disparity, which became the background for what we now have in the modern woke and BLM movements. And I've, I've lived in a context where I've had, to, I've had to really navigate between this kind of extreme stuff because it's in our church. Mm-hmm. It's been institutionalized in large portions of it. And when you address it based on its roots, you know, the easy way out is to say, you must be a racist because you don't agree with me. I, I, I have pastored multi-ethnic churches my entire ministry, but I recognize Marxism when I see it. And I guess the question I have is, why don't we recognize what's obvious when it's facing us, when we're interacting, we see it transforming, not just the the, the church, I mean the world and and North American culture, but our church has morphed in that direction. Where's, you know, what do you, I'm just... So so that's a great question, and uh, there's a strategy in war that the force that takes the initiative typically dictates the terms of the engagement and typically wins. And the one on the defensive is reacting to the initiative. We are called you know, to do warfare, not as the world does, with weapons we have a divine power to demolish strongholds. And so we are to take the weapons of truth, love, freedom, and move forward aggressively, Jesus talked about, in establishing his principles and kingdoms and how we practice. But instead, what has happened is the enemy has attacked and set the landscape, and what's happened is they've set the landscape of equity and wokeness and so forth, and many of the institutions now are reacting to their definitions and their standards, and the institutions of the church and the schools are now working towards proving to the world that we aren't racist, we aren't bigoted, we aren't sexist, we love everybody, and how can we prove that? Well, we'll set up our own quotas and agendas, and we'll make sure that we have the same uh, equity concerns that you have, and so we're reacting to the world's standards and trying to prove to the world that that that... It's a losing proposition. Reject the entire, the entire gamut of that system and instead return to the biblical principles and advance as Christians the principles of God and how we live. And you can be assured as, 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 as night turns to day and day turns to night, you can be assured as soon as you do, you will have the wrath of the world. <laughs> coming down upon you, just like they came down upon Christ and the, and the early church and apostles, because the, the truth will expose the fallacy. It's so rational, so logical, so, so reality-based. What I'm saying in here, these principles of equality that we would advance, that were written in our Declaration of Independence, the inalienable rights that we have, the equal opportunity for people, it's so rational and sensible that the other system collapses. And this is why communist systems and Marxist systems always fall when there's true openness and liberty of speech 
and ideas and person, when you have true liberties, those systems collapse. That's why you have to use these artificial. And when the church colludes and practices the principle to try to prove to these others, we gotta, we gotta let them see how, how, you know, you've already lost. So I think we have to come back and, and advance the kingdom of God on the principles of God and anticipate. But, but that means we can't value the, the institutions that we own more than the people and so we, we would have to say, well, I would rather have the governments take our properties than to coerce my own membership to violate their consciences. I would rather not get my Medicare payments from the government than to coerce my employees to take a shot that they don't want to put in their body. But sadly, that didn't happen, at least not for all the institutions. Yes, in the back. Bad things happening, we have to deal with this kind of thing. But God is not just going to let Satan do all this stuff and then go into hide into a corner and say, okay, you're very powerful. He's promised us that we're going to have the latter rain and we're going to be giving his truth and he's going to shine in people like never before, before he comes. So there will be a contrast between the two and that contrast will get sharper and sharper. You're exactly right. Yes, in the back. So one of the things, I want to thank you, um, because that lens where it was the bent pole, Satan has done such a fantastic, awfully, awful job of putting the lens up of what God's character is really like, so that the world perception is bent on that. I don't know how they see God. You're exactly right. By beholding, we become changed. Excellent. Excellent. Bring the light on that. Mm-hmm. So the person who doesn't want to admit their guilt, if they're seeing God as the wrathful God, sure they don't want to admit it because they're told that they're supposed to be perfect because he's perfect and they're trying to fix themselves. So they're working on it. By but then they don't have to because they have someone standing between to cover them. By identifying the false lens, mm-hmm. you're able to say, oh, I was seeing it wrong. So being able to bring this light in uh, brings so much healing if people can recognize it. And then on the equity part, being called to reach those communities then. So being able to go in and have the, the kids center where they can come in and learn more and achieve the knowledge base to help them be successful in that application process to institutions, that would help to uphold um, communities at large. Yes. So what you're saying we should be doing is what I would consider a return to primitive godliness, which has been called for. Yes. Yeah, godly principles and live those out. And, and what, what, what's going to happen? What? So let me give you this uh, comparison. 2,000 years ago, there was a group of people specially called by and blessed by God to prepare the world for the advent of the Messiah. They were blessed with the inspired writings, the prophets that wrote. They were blessed with the sanctuary message, health message, Sabbath message, uh, proper understanding, most of them of the state of the dead and so forth. Yet when Jesus came and stood among them, and you think, what was it that Jesus taught that so upset them that they wanted to kill him? And understand, Pilate and the Romans did not seek Jesus' death. Pilate actually tried to make an avenue for him to escape, if you remember. It was the church leadership of the day that absolutely wanted Jesus killed. Why? Did Jesus teach a different Sabbath? He was teaching Sunday laws. Did Jesus teach a different Bible? Did Jesus teach creation was through so slow evolutionary processes over thousands of years? Did Jesus teach uh, a, a different sanctuary, a different way to do the, the sacrifices, a different temple? Did Jesus teach anything different than their standard accepted 28 fundamental beliefs? And you understand there's another group of people today that have the inspired writings of God, the prophetic message, the Sabbath, the sanctuary message, the health message, the believe in the literal creation week. And Ellen White, who was one of those people, wrote in 1888 that the Holy Spirit was met with the exact same attitude at our general conference that Jesus was met with. And do you think that that Satan specifically targeted that group to corrupt their understanding so that even though Jesus didn't agree with their doctrines, there was still something about what he did that they hated and they had to kill him? I'm going to suggest to you that that, uh, this organization is in very big danger of fulfilling the exact same role. But from that group... And I want you to understand, from the Jewish people came the people who had the message, like Paul, who when it was reset, he was able to go out, and and the apostles, they were all Jewish background. But the institution, Caiaphas stood up and said, it is better for us to kill Jesus than to lose our power 
in our organization. And what's happening, I think, today is the Adventist organization is in danger of valuing its power, its hospitals, its properties, its institutions, its publishing houses, more than the people. And under COVID, I saw, we saw that they made a choice, leadership-wise, to protect the institutional power at the expense of the consciences of their employees. They mandated their employees, students, staff do things, and they coerced them, and they terminated them from employment if they wouldn't. This is beastly. This is not Christian. This is not the way Jesus works. And I think it was a big warning call for all to wake up and recognize it is not about uh, teaching a different Sabbath or teaching a different state of the dead or a different sanctuary. It is about the methods we employ and how we treat others. We are deciding which law is being written on our heart in the way we treat others because as we do it under the least of these, you do it unto me. And the big trick of Satan is valuing something other than God's methods. So, for instance, well, we need to do this to save lives. If you just bow down to that idol, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you can save your life. You can save your life. How about if they, instead of had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's wives out there, if, if, they, if they were married, and they said, if you bow down to the idol, you can save their life. We'll throw their lives into the fire. So we need to bow to save other people's lives. Do you bow then? But, but we have to do this to save lives. If you love people, you'll do it. You'll, 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 and, you, and, and if you run an organization, you'll coerce the people because we have to save lives. Understand it's a long, historic trap of Satan. The Dark Ages Church, what was the justification for the Dark Ages Church in many circumstances? There was always power and money involved. But the spiritual justification... We have to burn them to save them. We have to burn them to save eternal souls. We're, we, they might lose their temporal life, but we're gonna, we can do last rites and we can send their souls to heaven. We have to save souls, keep them from hell. It's justifiable. We have to stop the heresy because other people will be deceived and go to hell. So we have to burn them to stop the heresy. We have to save lives. It's a constant trap of Satan. You can't win God's cause using Satan's methods, period. And I have, I have grave concerns for the church I love and the church I grew up in. And I will tell you my personal view is that from the membership will come a, a, a group of people that are going to take an incredible end time three angels message to the world. Fear God and give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth to see. It's a message that's going to change hearts and minds. It's going to call people from all walks. Every, and if you look at the, at the revelation, it says from every kindred, tribe, nation, people, great multitude came. But I don't think that's coming out of institutional policy. Yes. Just, a, just an observation and question for me. You know, the book of Revelation, you have two churches in their Adventism, not one. You have the Church of Philadelphia and the Church of Laodicea. When Ellen White describes end time Adventism, it makes it, she uses the imagery of Philadelphia. It's in early writings. She uses the imagery of Philadelphia to describe the 100,000, those who are saved at the end. My question is this. Is, you know, she describes like the chapter final warning, the two groups in, in our church. A large class that profess faith in the third angel's message have not been sanctified to be the truth. And others who marshal to give the final warning, which you would call the loud cry. Now, I guess my question is this, is that what, how do you view, I mean, Laodicea, the Laodicean component. If you had to compare it to the harlot of Revelation, would it pass the harlot test? So I guess wouldn't would churches do the seven churches? Wouldn't Laodicea be? I'm not talking about the seven churches, but the Laodicea condition would pass the harlot test. Wouldn't Laodicea be analogous to the ten virgins that were all asleep, five wise and five foolish? I, I, I think they were all asleep. I think it, I think Sardis is Sardis is the sleeping church in the Book of Revelation. Laodicea is the church with all the opportunities. So is our church asleep now, or is it awake? Well, Sardis is the sleeping church. But is the church today awake or asleep? I don't think it. I don't think that's its core problem. Personally, I, I think it is like the heart in many ways. It's rich. It's devoid of the robe. The, if you look at what Laodicea is described as, yeah. it matches Revelation seventeen eighteen in many ways. It's not the harlot, but the Laodicean condition is a harlot condition. 
It's, it's a lukewarm condition. Yeah, I mean, as we've experienced it... I'm, I will spew you out of my mouth. You know, emeo, emesis, vomit, vomit you. It makes me sick. It boasts, it's narcissistic. These are the, conditions, these are the core elements of the harlot team. And I, I've looked at that. How, how do you get lukewarm water? Mixing, 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 hot and cold, right. wise and foolish, hot there. That or or you have some right doctrines that you mix with some wrong doctrines. Like you take the right Sabbath day and you mix it with imperial Roman law, and teach that God runs his universe like a Caesar runs Rome, and law breaking requires God to kill you. So you got the right doctrine, but in, under the wrong law model. So that you are lukewarm. And can you get a white robe? With the righteousness that we come up with. And, 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 the has this problem. and what is the righteousness of Christ? Where is it applied? If we, we, if we, if we by faith claim the righteous robe of Jesus Christ, what does that actually mean in reality? It's a metaphor. So is that, yeah, so it's actually something real happening inside the heart and mind of the believer. Ellen White says in Christ's Opulation 3.11 that when, when we accept Christ, our heart becomes in unity with his heart. Our desires are merged with his. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered with the robe of righteousness. Okay, so it's transformational. And so is that the way it's traditionally taught in the church, that when you accept the robe by faith, that you are transformed to be Christ-like in heart? Or is it taught that when you accept the robe by faith, that when the Father looks at you, he can't see your unrighteousness because the covering of Jesus covers your unrighteousness? The Reformation taught both. It taught the objective covering and the subjective transformation. The, the, the Council of Trent, papacy only taught the subjective change. In, in fact, it codified that, and the reformers resisted that. Mm-hmm. And this is why the subjective part... And do you know why the reformers resisted it? Yes, I do. Because they wanted to do away with purgatory. Because in the Catholic system, it's purging sins, and the church has a role through indulgences and through sacraments and through other other mechanisms to help purge sin. So they need it to be subjective because there's always this sense of guilt and shame from sin, and the church has a role and can be empowered through their systems. And Martin Luther came up with the penal substitution theology that all sins are based on Christ, past, present, and future, and paid for there, and therefore there's no unpaid for sins to be purged in purgatory, and therefore there was... was an entire doctrine brought about to try and uh, take away the, the power over the people of the false doctrine of purgatory. It has nothing to do with actual objective reality in God's plan. They, they resisted perfectionism. Council Trent created perfectionism. The subjective without that objective element with it created perfectionism in the Catholic Church. And it almost went off the limb with Armenia. So when Jesus said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, we should reject that. We don't want to have perfectionism. So, so the reformers rejecting it then are rejecting scripture. They, they didn't reject the subjective. They didn't deny the objective either. So, so this objective and subjective, okay, objective is historically taught through the penal human law model to mean that a payment has been made, the satisfaction of the law has been achieved, uh, and uh, that somebody had to die the penalty, and that penalty has been paid by Jesus' death on the cross, so the objective is met. Now, when you have faith in him, then you receive his spirit, and he transforms you, and you experience his love and grace in your life, and you're healed. That's the subject, your experiential part of it, okay? Um, the, the entire penal law aspect of objective is f- fraudulent, it's not scriptural, and it's based on accepting the lie that God's law works like human law. There is an objective, though. He's exactly right, there is, but it's not imperial law legal. The objective is the objective achievement achieved in the person of Jesus Christ as our substitute. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he picked up humanity, damaged by Adam, carried it to completion, destroying the power of Satan and death, 
destroying death and bringing life and immortality to light, and destroying the devil's work, which was working to put the image of Satan in the place where the image of God should be. He, he objectively restored the species human into sinless perfection in his own life journey as a human, exercising human abilities, and the human species was elevated to the throne of God, sitting at the right hand of God in the person of Jesus. That is an objective achievement. That objective achievement is not legal. It's a, it, is a, it is accomplished, okay? The, the subject of when we see what God, what he has revealed about God, destroying the lies, uh, transforming the species in his own person, we become grafted into the vine and we receive his victory reproduced in us and we subjectively become victors and it's no longer I live but Christ lives in me. But all of it is actual in reality because God's the God of reality restoring his creatures back into actual unity with him and all the penal legal elements that are taught through the human law model are fraudulent. I'm just telling you, they're fraudulent. Of those two, the object that you described, mm-hmm. which one is the basis of our acceptance? On this, the reformers died in the flames. Yes, but they didn't. They, the reformers, reformers did not teach what I'm teaching. The reformers taught a penal objective, a legal objective. I've read a lot of the reformers. So have I. It's not that easy to what you just I described. It. Our 1888 division in our church was based on this, where where a Butler took the imposed law view of Galatians and Wagner took the design law view of Galatians. And Ella White sided with Wagner. Justification by faith mm-hmm. is based on the subjective. You're Catholic. Mm-hmm. That's what the council trend did. It put justification by faith into the realm of the subjective. The Reformation never went there. On that distinction, they died in flames because they discovered that Christ, our righteousness, is acceptance at the beginning of the journey, not at the end of the journey. When the subjective is all worked out. No, I, I would agree with that. I, I oh, think you would. Yes, I would agree with that. But that's not a legal acceptance. That's an actual acceptance. When, when Abraham had faith in God, okay, the natural state of the human heart is enmity, according to Romans. We don't trust God. That's the natural state of the sinful heart. And it says Abraham trusted God and was recognized as righteous. Sister White. So, so let me, so, so, so what happened was Abraham's heart changed from distrust to trust, and then he was set right or justified. So his heart changed first, and that's when he was recognized as justification, because justification is setting right, which is wrong, and the human heart is in distrust, so it has to be set right with God. But it's only accomplished because, first, Jesus objectified in his victory as our substitute, made that possible for us to be set right with God. I agree with that. Okay. I'm not arguing with that. But that's not penal legal. See, the penal legal precedes the Reformation, and that's not fair to put all the Reformation... I agree with you. The penal legal started in heaven. When Lucifer alleged that God's law works like human law, and God will punish you if you break the rules. Calvin's three great chapters on righteousness by faith in the Institute of Christian Religion should be read by every Christian. It's Ellen White read them. She adapted them in her manuscripts after Australia. And they don't say it the way you're saying it. Those three chapters are the heart of the Reformation, and she said, righteousness by faith as taught by Lutheran Calvin, is the third angel's message. I'd like to see that quote because I've never seen it. Uh, I, I know she says that the third angel's message is righteousness by faith and verity, but I've never seen her, her endorse Calvin as the source of truth. She affirms them. That's why Great Chronicles has them in it. Mm-hmm. Calvin and Luther were right about righteousness by faith. And, and, and to lose that... Actually, she, says, she, she actually says explicitly that they coming out of Catholicism had many things they didn't understand they could not work out. Never goes after the gospel. Mm-hmm. The so we, we've got to quit. We're already 12 minutes over. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for your mercy. We ask that you will lead us to study these things out for ourselves and, uh, and come to be settled in our own minds that we, we will know the truth as it is in you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I'm sorry.